What a good morning it is. So glad to be here. I'm really excited about our passage this morning. I told somebody this morning we could have spent the whole series on Titus with these five verses. They're that good. So before we go there, I want to remind us that uh, Paul has established as he begins the letter to Titus that elder governance was priority number one for the church in Crete. They needed to have quality men who were willing to shepherd and guard the church in the midst of divisive distractions that were already going on in the church, which, if you stop and think about it, is pretty remarkable to consider. I mean, the church is in its infancy, what most would consider to be its purest form. And yet, false teachers have already infiltrated the ranks. These eloquent deceivers have maneuvered themselves into places of influence. These are not problems that developed over, over a long period of time. These are issues that were present in the church from the very beginning. And so Paul instructs Titus to appoint godly men to help shepherd and guard the flock. But right alongside of godly leaders is the importance of Christ-like community. In fact, in chapter 2, Paul addresses every single member of the traditional Christian household that would have been present in the local church. He speaks specifically to, to older women and their investment in the lives of younger women, of older men and their investment in the lives of younger men, to bond slaves, to landowners, every single person shared in the responsibility of making God real in the life of someone else. It's the ripple effect of relationships where life-transforming truth is being passed down from one generation to the next. Paul's point is explicit and it is clear. Healthy relationships within the body of Christ promote sound doctrine our life together is where we put the gospel on display it's where the truth of god's word is applied to our daily lives where life transforming truth is is passed down in relationships from one generation to the next the christian life was intended to be lived out in community faithful obedience however is not something that we just set out to do on our own. It's not the result of, of determination or willpower. We, we obey because we try harder. That's not in Scripture. It's not the result of actions that are motivated by guilt or shame or somehow trying to remain in good standing before the Lord. See, ultimately, according to Scripture, our good works are the result of God's redeeming grace. Paul says to the Philippians, it's God who's at work in you. He says, to both work and to will for his good pleasure. In other words, God provides both the desire and the power to faithfully follow Christ. His grace is what compels us to be a holy people set apart for good deeds. It's the, the power of His grace that teaches us how to say yes to the right things, how to say no to the wrong things. 
as Roger taught us last week, so that we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. That's the point. That our lives lived out in this world might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. And it's all made possible because of grace. Before we look at this passage this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's a word that we use often. It may be too often because it loses its impact when it becomes so familiar to our lips. So, Father, would you do a work in our heart this morning? Help us see your grace in a new way, a fresh way that might help us appreciate the value of the gift that you said you lavished upon us. Lord, would you please work through me as, we, as you speak to your people for the praise and glory of your name. We love you, Jesus, and we want to know you more. We pray this in your name. Amen. So turn to Titus chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 11. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. So Paul begins this word, or I mean this verse, with the word for. And what he's doing, he's using that as a connection word to tie everything he's said up to this point with what he will begin to say next. He's going to highlight how, how grace is ultimately the power behind these healthy relationships within the body of Christ. Grace is what ultimately empowers us to live holy lives. But grace is not some impersonal influence like pixie dust sprinkled on us by, by Tinkerbell. That's not what he has in mind here. In fact, grace ultimately is a person. And here's why I believe that's true. Look again at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. Paul is referring to an actual event in history. A time and place where the the grace of God was made visible to human eyes. Now, we need to keep that in mind because God's grace has been evident since the beginning of time, right? We see signs of his grace all over the place. We see it in nature as the sun rises and the rain falls on both the the godly and the ungodly. That's grace. We've seen it in his power. We look all throughout Scripture. We see when he parted the Red Sea, when the walls of Jericho crumbled. But all these evidences of God's grace ultimately point to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's when grace appeared. We know that's true because of what he says through the Apostle John when he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. For of His fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The grace of God 
has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. Grace is a person. That's how we see the true essence of God made visible in human eye, to human eyes. That's why the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God's nature. Grace is not some invisible power. Grace is a person. I love the word Paul uses when he talks about how, how grace appeared. That word for appear means epiphany. It, it was the same word that Zacharias used when he first held the baby Jesus in his arms. And I want you to listen again to what Zacharias said in chapter 1, uh, verse 68. He says this, Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He goes on in verse 77 and says, To give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine. There's the word epiphany, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. See, Zacharias gets it. He gets it. He understands that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise of redemption. Jesus is the light of our salvation made visible in appearance before our very eyes. And not just for some men. Look again at our verse in, in verse 11. It says, bringing salvation to all men. Again, this ties back to what Paul's been saying earlier in this chapter. Older women, younger women, older men, younger men, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. He's covering everybody. His point is God's salvation has come to all men, to everyone regardless of race or gender or ethnicity all men so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life for as many who believe to them he gives the right to become children of God by grace you have been saved and that grace is a person Because salvation is found through faith in Christ alone. His blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Salvation is a work of grace. And the Bible tells us that grace has been lavished upon us. I want us to look at this same truth from a different perspective. In Romans chapter 5, Paul writes these words beginning in verse 6. He says, For while we were yet helpless... At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone might dare to even die. But, But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, grace is where total depravity meets pure love. Grace is where a helpless sinner becomes a child of God. 
Grace is where the light of God shines into the darkness of sin. The love of God was demonstrated. The grace of God appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In his life, in his ministry, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, grace has appeared and grace is a person. And that person is Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now look at verse 12. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Paul is continuing his same thought and he's telling us that 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 grace that appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ is still present among God's people. The presence of God through the work of the Spirit is instructing us. So what we learn now is that grace is a teacher. Grace is instructing us. Remember, a few weeks ago, I said that the most important quality in the life of every believer is a teachable heart. And here's why. Because grace is a teacher. Grace is instructing us. Everyone God saves, he sanctifies. He teaches us to to become more like Christ so that we, like Christ, can put the gospel on display in the way in which we live. Paul says grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires. So he starts with a negative here, and I think the reason he does that is because very often learning begins with unlearning. Now, I learned this to be true as a youth baseball coach. Every year that I would get these little leaguers in Coach Grant's team, we would begin every season unlearning bad habits. <laughs> they would inevitably pick up the ball, and the first thing they do is put their hand underneath the ball and throw like a catapult, right? So I'd have to teach them, no, it's actually just the opposite of what you think. Your fingers are on top of the ball. So when you reach back, I want you to look back and fingers to the sky. That's our term that we would use, fingers to the sky, and keep them on top as you make your throw. The other thing that they would inevitably do because they were fearful of the ball is when they would try to catch the grounder, everything was over here to the side. So my body's out of the way. Well, we would have a, a neat little drill that we would do to help break this bad habit. We would not use our gloves. I would hit these slow grounders, and I said, all right, the goal is this. If you've ever played croquet, you want to hit the ball between the wickets, right? Well, your feet are going to be the wickets, so I'm going to hit you a ground ball. I want you to stand in front of it and watch it go right between your legs, right? That's all you got to do. I was teaching them to break a bad habit so that I could teach them a new skill. Well, the same is true for us. We all come into the Christian life with some bad habits. Very often, learning begins with unlearning. The Spirit of God. It's like a good coach who points out our mistakes. The conviction of the Spirit is actually a gift from God. He he graciously exposes sin in our life, so as Paul says, that we might deny ungodliness. Now, ungodliness is someone who opposes the rule of God in their life. Ungodliness. And we need to understand, this was true for all of us. Because 
apart from Christ, um, yeah, apart from Christ, the Scripture tells us that we were all enemies of God. Before Christ set us free, we were blind to sin and powerless to overcome it. The Bible says that we lived in accordance with the lust of the flesh, with, with the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And by nature, by nature, we were enemies of God. In other words, we did basically what we wanted to do. Or at least that's what we thought we were doing. Because actually, we were living under the controlling influence of Satan. We opposed the rule of God because we lived in accordance with the rule of God's enemy, Satan. We were slaves to sin. And this is key. Don't miss this, which means as a slave to sin, we could not say no to sin. Oh, but grace, the gift of grace opens our eyes so that we recognize sin in our life. That's why redemption begins with repentance. I have to acknowledge what is wrong before I can turn and do what is right you see when we deny ungodliness we are denying satan the right to rule our lives because that was taken away at the cross we are rejecting worldly desires now actually this is one of my favorite words in the scripture this word for desire used here it's the word epithumia Thumia means desire, epi means over. So it's an an over-desire. It's taking a good thing and making it the ultimate thing. (laughs) Whether you're talking about money or sex or power, you don't control worldly desires. They control you. It's an over-desire, epithumia. But grace, ah, grace. Grace teaches us to say no to these selfish appetites. It's the power to to overcome sin's control. It gives you the the right perspective of what's really important in life. It brings balance to those over-desires. But in addition to the, the negative things, denying ungodliness and worldly desires, grace has a positive effect too. He, he says in that verse that it teaches us to, to say yes to being sensible, to being righteous and godly in this present age. And I do believe that Paul chose these three terms very strategically. Being sensible, he's mentioned all throughout chapter 2, hasn't he? We've run across this four or five times at least by now. And we talked about how being sensible is this idea of having self-control. Someone who is sober-minded. This is an an internal quality of spiritual integrity. It's who you are on the inside. Then he goes on and says, we need to be righteous. And, And righteousness basically is a term that's describing how we relate to those around us. It's a person who's honest in their actions. They do the right thing as it relates to their relationships with other people. When I think about this term, it reminds me of the passage in Micah that says, do justly, love mercy, 
Walk humbly with your God. That is righteous living. But then the third term is godliness. Godliness is how we relate to God. Because if ungodliness is, is, is living in accordance with the rule of Satan, then godliness is just the opposite. It's living a life in accordance with the rule of God. It's like a son who, who takes up the attributes of his father. You've heard people say before, you remind me of your dad. Because they demonstrate attributes of their father by how they work or how they talk or the things that they do. Those attributes came out of a relationship. They are like their father because they are related to him. And very often, the closer that relationship, the more of the resemblance you will see. The same is true in our walk with Christ. The outcome of our intimacy comes through a walk with Jesus Christ where we are shaped by the one we love. That's godliness. Now, do you see what Paul did here? He he talked about how grace teaches us to be honest with ourselves, how to be honest with each other, live honestly in our relationships with one another, and how to be honest in our relationship with God. He's talking about spiritual integrity. He's talking about how we love one another. He's talking about our faithful obedience. And this is all pointing back to what he ended that last section with. So that we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. That's the point. That's what we're trying to accomplish. Now look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, this is our ultimate motivation, the anticipation of Christ's return. Our conduct in this present age is to be guided by our belief that there is an age to come. It's what Paul is calling our blessed hope. We are able to endure injustice because of the promise of the age to come, a a time in when God says, I will set things right. So we can endure injustice if we know that there's a day coming when God will make things right. We can endure suffering because we know that God promises that our suffering does not even compare to the glory that is ultimately to be revealed. When? In the age to come. We can deny worldly desires. Why? Because we know this world is not our home. Our home is in the age to come. That's why Paul writes to the Philippians. Chapter 3, verse 20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also, here we see the repeat of what he just said to Titus, we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. God is doing a powerful work through his grace in our life right now. But there will be a day when that grace is made complete. When the power of God puts all things in their rightful place. This is our 
blessed hope. And the blessed hope is the ultimate motivation for godly living. It's the idea of making life choices with an eternal perspective in mind. I think it's no accident that Paul uses that same word epiphany in this verse as well. Because just as the appearance of grace came through the person and work of Christ, it will reappear when Christ returns and then ultimately establishes all the promises of God fulfilled in the age to come. That's what we are living for. Now look at verse 14. Speaking of Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. And let no one disregard you. Man, guys, there is so much gospel goodness in these five verses that you could feast on this for weeks. And listen to me, I hope you do. I hope you keep going back to this and mine it for every nugget of gold that's in there because it is a rich, rich treasure. Here, Paul is saying that Jesus gave himself for us. That phrase in and of itself is of huge significance. He gave himself for us. It was a voluntary sacrifice. He laid his life down. Jesus even said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Paul's point here as well. Jesus gave himself. He laid down his life in order to redeem us. Redemption, by definition, is the the release of receipt upon a ransom. It's how a slave is ultimately set free. A price that was paid to release somebody from the bondage of slavery. And that's what Jesus did for us. Tim Keller says it this way. says, Jesus paid a debt he did not owe because we owe a debt that we could not pay. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The grace of God was ultimately put on display at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says that he redeemed us from every lawless deed. It reminds me of what he writes to the Colossians when Paul says that the record of your sin, or we could use the term from this passage, that, law, that record of every lawless deed, okay, including the judgment deserved for them. Paul said, All those things were nailed to the cross. They were nailed to the cross through the hands of our Savior. Every lawless deed. Jesus triumphed over Satan. He triumphed over sin. He triumphed over death. And don't miss this. Don't miss this. Everything he accomplished, everything he accomplished, he credits to you. That's grace. That's grace over and abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. Everything he accomplished, he credits to you. 
righteousness comes from God on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. That's the power of redeeming grace. But this passage goes on and says, not only were you redeemed, it says you were purified. You've been set apart as God's own possession. In other words, you have been set apart and called to live a life of divine purpose, of holy purpose in this world in which we live. It's why that goes on to say that we should be a people zealous for good deeds. Now, it's really important not to miss something that Paul has gone to great lengths to help us understand in this passage. It relates back to what we talked about before. Our motivation for good deeds is not what we go and do for God. Our motivation for good deeds is because of what God has done for us. We are zealous for good deeds because of what God has done for us. Grace not only overcomes the penalty of sin, grace actually is the source of our desire for holiness, for good deeds. The the zeal that we have is a work of the Spirit because of the grace of God. Remember what I shared earlier, that passage where it says, God is at work within you to both will and to work according to to his good pleasure. Again, by God's grace, we possess both the the power and the desire to be zealous for good deeds. His grace compels us to be a holy people, set apart for good purposes. It is the power by which we say no to the wrong things. It is the same power by which we say yes to the right things. Instead of this epithumia, this over-desire, this imbalanced, in-placed desire, making small things the ultimate thing. The grace of God teaches us how to balance the gifts of God, putting them in their proper place. It is a rightly directed zeal towards good deeds. Why? Why do we do it? So that we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Or, as Jesus said, that they might see your good works in what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's the exact same idea. Paul and Jesus are saying the same thing. It's so important for us to see that godly living is not the result of our determination and self-effort. It's not motivated because of guilt or shame. Godly living is the result of a deeper understanding of God's redeeming grace. We are zealous for good deeds because we understand what God has done. That's the purpose. Let me explain it this way. The Puritans called this the power of new affections. The power of new affections. And they used an an oak tree to help make the point. Now, I brought something here for you to look at. This is uh, a branch from my parents' tree across the street. Now, a couple of weeks ago, if you would have looked out at their oak tree, you would have seen the entire tree like this. I don't think it dropped a single leaf all through the winter and fall. It clinged to, to every single one of those leaves. Now, if you were to drive by that same tree today, they're all gone. And the reason they're gone is because the new life of spring pushed the dead leaves off the tree. Not the wind. Not the cold, 
But the new life of spring pushed the dead leaves off the tree. Well, the same is true for us. Because sometimes, maybe oftentimes, we cling to sinful affections. We try to shake our bad habits with resolve. We try to resolve to be a better person, to to loose ourselves of these bad habits, and yet they still remain, like the dead leaves still clinging to the tree. But we must understand, we cannot accomplish what only grace can do. Our battle with sin is won by our love for Jesus Christ. Did you hear what I said? Our battle with sin is won by our love for Jesus Christ. The power of the new affections replacing the sinful desires. That's why Paul says these things speak and and exhort and, and rebuke with all authority. And again, I think these words are intentional. When he says speak, he's really talking about teaching. So if you go back to to verse 1, he's telling him speak or teach, telling Titus, teach these things which are fitting for sound doctrine. The truth of God must replace the lies of the enemy. So Titus, teach God's truth. We must first recognize what is wrong before we can do what is right. It's the power of God's redeeming grace. It's how we become a new creation. What does it tell us? Old things are gone. Why? Because new things have come. And it pushed those dead things that want to cling to our life away. The power of new affections replacing sinful desires. But not only teach, he goes on and says, exhort with these same words. The word exhort means to encourage. So when people are down, Remind them what Christ has done. When people have failed, remind them about Christ's forgiveness. When people are suffering, remind them of Christ's promised reward. Don't change the message when you rebuke someone who is in sin. Remind them, why would you hang on to sinful deeds when God has promised you new life? Should we continue in sin? as Paul said, so that grace may increase. May it never be. How can those who have died to sin still cling to sinful desires? Teach, exhort, reprove, and it's all the same message. Paul, never let anybody divorce the gospel of Jesus Christ from the grace of God. And at the same time, Never allow anyone to use the grace of God as a license for sin. Fix your eyes on Jesus because that is the source of our redeeming grace. Now, as I already mentioned, we could take 30 different things that would apply to our life from these few verses. And I hope you take time this week to unpack some of those things. But I'm going to leave you with one this morning, and it is this. God's grace changes our life. God's grace changes our life, giving us both the desire and the power to faithfully follow.
follow Christ. And here's the key. The deeper we understand the magnitude of God's grace, the less we are inclined towards sin. Because grace is ultimately what teaches us to say no. We deny the things that may be very acceptable in the world around us. Why? Because we know that they're not right in the eyes of God because of what the Spirit has taught us in our hearts. Grace makes us uncomfortable with compromise. There's this pit in our stomach that we just know this is not right. And that's because grace is teaching us to say no to the wrong things. It might be certain movies. It might be certain music that you would listen to. It might be what some people do for a good time. But when you align your life with God, those things begin to lose their appeal. And not because they're not any fun. See, sin wouldn't be tempting <laughs> if it wasn't fun. But that fun just does not satisfy in the end. In fact, that fun leaves you feeling empty. And what you have instead is a trail of broken relationship, broken hearts, broken lives. Grace offers something better. Now, in both, you will laugh in both. <laughs> You only live in one. Grace teaches you something better. Instead of having fun that leaves you empty, it teaches you about a joy that leaves you fulfilled. Instead of hurt, it brings healing. It is a joy that goes way beyond the passing pleasure of a good time. Our battle with sin is ultimately won by our love for Jesus Christ, the power of these new affections replacing our sinful desires. And the more we are satisfied with Christ, the less we are inclined towards sin. That's why Paul writes and talks about the surpassing value, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he explains in that passage that he could lose everything that he once cling to for, for, for value and purpose in life. He could lose it all and have Christ, and he would be enough. He would be enough. It is a relationship of love made possible because of the power of redeeming grace. Now, let me tell you, if you don't know Christ in this way, listen to me, you are missing out on all that God has promised and all that Christ has made possible. The joy of the Christian life is found in the treasure of knowing Christ. It is a relationship that teaches our hearts. It is a relationship that transforms our desires. It is the distinguishing characteristic of the Christian faith. It sets us apart from all other world religions that blindly follow a list of commands or, 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 or platitudes in which to get inner peace or to be in good standing, to, to find acceptance in the eyes of a higher being. That has nothing to do with Christianity. Grace is a person. And that person has called you into a relationship. 
And in that relationship, you learn how to say no to the wrong things. You learn how to say right or say yes to the right things because those are the things that ultimately bring fulfillment in your life because it's what God designed you for. It's what he created you to be. And that's the relationship that he has called us all into. If that's not your experience, let me encourage you. Please seek this out. Talk to somebody who understands what it means to passionately pursue an intimate walk with Christ. Because in the end, that's what the Christian life is all about. And anything less than that, hear me, anything less than a passionate pursuit of knowing Christ is a deception of the enemy. We were created to live eternally in a relationship with our Creator. And Jesus Christ is the one that made that possible. It's where the grace appeared. And we were forgiven so that we could endure the realities of this present age in a sin-cursed world because of the blessed hope of the promises to be fulfilled in the age to come when the grace of God is made complete in the eyes of the believer as we spend eternity with him as he intended from the beginning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a, I pray, at least a fresh look at a familiar word. Your grace and the power that transforms our lives. It exposes sin. It creates new desires so that those new affections can to push away those things that we have cling to as enemies of yours. But you've made us a part of your family. You have introduced us into a community where we can live out the fulfillment of what you've called us to in our relationships with one another. So Lord, I just pray that all of us this week will take some extra time to look at these five verses and just mine the goodness built into them by the inspiration of your Spirit when they were written. May they encourage us. May they challenge us. May they lift us to be the people that you've called us to be as we walk in relationship with you because of the power of your redeeming grace. Have your way in us so that we might adorn the gospel of God our Savior in every respect. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Have a great day.